Thanks for checking out this podcast from Christ Church of Ornogo. Our hope is that it helps you discover completeness in Jesus. Now for this week's teaching. Welcome back to our study in Galatians. Just as a reminder, a refresher of where we have been, Paul has been clarifying the true gospel against the false one. The Galatians were sliding back into this idea that their faith, their salvation should be in their Judaism, and Jews were persuading them and influencing them in that direction. But the issue is that Paul is saying that this is exactly what the gospel of Jesus Christ does. You see, they were thinking that their salvation would be found not in what Jesus did, but what they do. They thought that their salvation would not be found in a good God, but in how good of a person they could be. And Paul's trying to help them see that, man, this is dangerous. He's trying to warn them against it. And specifically, he's trying to show them the difference between the law and the promise. You see, our salvation, it's based on the promise of God, not our obedience to the law. But then there's these questions like, okay, well, what's the law for? Like, what's the point of it all? And Paul reminds them that the law, it shows us what is good. It just can't make us good. And it shows us what is just. It just can't justify us. But Paul says that through the promise, Jesus has come and he can justify us. And in him, when we have faith in him, we actually come into Christ and we enjoy and share in the inheritance and the blessing that only he can have. And he gives us a life with him. He has clothes us with his own garments. And our individual life are no longer seen, you know, in the, in a magnifying glass. But instead, we, we share a collective identity in Christ as we are found in him and we have freedom. Freedom to do all the things God has called us to do. But there are still more questions that persist. And the first one is like, okay, well, what about circumcision? Like we get the law, if we're going to do away with the law and we don't need to obey that anymore, that's fine. But circumcision actually came before the law. So how does that fit in? Well, listen to what Paul says. He says, mark my words. I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is obligated to obey the whole law. You who are trying to be justified by the law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. You see, Paul makes one final push for the Galatians to see that the law can never justify them and that this also includes circumcision. He says, if you allow yourself to be circumcised, then Jesus is of no value to you. And he repeats this message. If you allow yourself to be circumcised, Jesus is of no value to you. Now, before you panic, let's talk about why circumcision was so valuable, so meaningful to the Jewish people. It talks about this in Genesis 17, that circumcision actually would be the the covenant sign for those who belonged to the people of God. Now, of course, why that's so interesting is because that covenant sign is associated not with the covenant of the law, but with the covenant of the promise. And so the question naturally arises for a Jew is to say, well, okay, if we, we get if we don't need to obey the laws anymore, but what about circumcision, right? That came with that other covenant. So shouldn't that be something we still impose upon the Gentiles for their ability to have salvation and be in the covenant community? And the point of what Paul says is absolutely not. In fact, he addresses it in Romans 4 in this way. He says, we have been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness, Under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? It was not after, but before. And he received circumcision as a sign, a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. See, Paul is saying that even circumcision came after the promise, after the covenant. It was simply a sign of it. 
It just talked about what it is that the covenant and the promise were going to do. It had a practical and spiritual application to it. From a practical point of view, literally every time that that people would procreate, they would be reminded that they were actually contributing to the promise, expanding the family, allowing it to become as numerous as the stars and as as the sand on the seashore. And from a spiritual point of view, they were reminded that they were cutting away flesh, exactly what God would need to do in our hearts, as sin would need to be rooted out and cut away completely in order for us to really enjoy a covenant relationship with him. See, Paul is making the point here that circumcision is no longer needed because there's a new sign of the covenant. And this new sign, this seal, actually identifies whether we are found in God or not. And this new sign is actually cutting away our flesh in in ways that are truly like final and good and perfect. And this new sign is the Holy Spirit. You see, the Holy Spirit comes and it takes residence and it becomes a new seal on our life that acknowledges we are sons, right? This is why we get to cry, Abba, Father, right? We talked about this in our last lecture. The Holy Spirit changes everything. And he continues on in verse five. For through the Spirit, we eagerly await by faith the righteousness for which we hope. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. You see, the law was good, but it couldn't make us good. The law was just, but it couldn't justify us. It couldn't make us who we needed to be. But in Christ, when we have faith in Christ, the Spirit comes in and it accomplishes that task. You see, circumcision can't accomplish that at all. It simply fails to do it. But faith makes room for the Spirit, and the Spirit expresses its life in love through us. And Paul continues on in verse 7. You are running a good race. Who cut in on you to keep you from obeying the truth? That kind of persuasion does not come from the one who calls you. A little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. I am confident in the Lord that you will take no other view. The one who is throwing you into confusion, whoever that may be, will have to pay the penalty. You see, Paul often identifies the life of a Christian with a race. It's like we're running this race and the Christian faith is trying to make it to the finish line. In fact, Paul even describes himself in this race. And we can see in his final letter to Timothy that he's like, man, I've run the race. I've I've done everything that God has asked me to do. I know that death is near. And yet I also know that life is nearer. Because the truth is that when he would die, he would actually enter into life with God and receive the crown of righteousness, the prize for finishing the race, for allowing his faith to move him forward on a path toward experiencing God and all the fullness that he always desired. And Paul is asking now, like, who cut in and made you stop running? Man, you were on the track. You were were running hard. Your endurance was good, but then you got interrupted and that didn't come from God. And he quotes a proverb, which must have been pretty familiar because he also quotes it in 1 Corinthians 5. He simply says, a little evil goes a long way, man. It's like yeast in a batch of dough. It changes everything. Man, when I was a kid, I remember I had a youth minister who was doing this illustration of what sin does. And I'm sure you probably have heard this illustration. It's probably a pretty popular one. But I remember him having a plate of brownies. And he was like, do you want a brownie? And I was this little kid. I'm like, "Uh, yes, I do want a brownie. And he said, okay, but just to let you know, I just put a pinch of dog poop in there. Do you still want one? And I was like, no, absolutely not. I do not want one of those brownies. Now, of course, this is immature. It's gross. I know. But the truth is, it has stuck with me. Because his his point is, is that a little bit, a little bit of filth 
can destroy the whole thing. And what Paul's point in all of this is, is that a little bit of falsehood, when it begins to infiltrate the gospel, can begin to destroy those who have, who have believed it. And he's trying to help them see how truly grotesque and gross our sin is. We should allow the illustration to penetrate. Because the truth is the gospel is not grace plus works. It's not Jesus loves you, so now you have to obey. It's not Jesus died for you, and so now you better be willing to die for him. Like the gospel is that God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And whoever rejects that gospel, whoever changes that gospel, Paul says they will have a a high penalty to pay. And he continues on in verse 11. Brothers and sisters, if I am still preaching circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been abolished. As for those agitators, I wish they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. Now, apparently somebody in the church has been using Paul's authority, Paul's name, to say, hey, Paul said you need to be circumcised, so you need to make sure you're circumcised. And Paul says, why would I do that? I never said that. I would never say that. If I was doing that, wouldn't that mean that I persecuted Christians for nothing, that I left Judaism for nothing, that everything I have become is is literally purposeless? If I was saying that, why, why now even would I be being persecuted by people around me, saying that the gospel that I'm trying to present and proclaim is actually moving us away from the community that God wants for us? No, he's saying, I have not been saying that. I have been saying that the truth is the cross is all that we need, and it's offensive to everybody. He says the offense of the cross would be gone if I said that circumcision was still needed because the cross is radical in every culture and society. Man, it pushes on the pressure points of every society and religion. This is an upside-down kingdom where the king is crucified, where triumph happens through surrender, where a, a, a tool of execution and instrument like the cross could be seen not as a death sentence, but instead as a symbol of hope. Man, this is what, the, this is what God does. 1 Corinthians 1 says the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But man, for us who believe, it is the power of God. And then Paul just says, hey, you know what? The people, the agitators, the ones coming in trying to give you a false gospel, trying to say you need circumcision, man, I just wish that they would go the whole way. I wish they would just cut the whole thing off. Man, he's not messing around with these false teachers. But then he turns to his listeners and he reminds them, what God calls them to. He says, you, my brothers and sisters, you were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love, for the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. See, the natural question that comes up after Paul has has finished arguing for the gospel, arguing for the true gospel, and proclaiming it once more is like, okay, well, if the law doesn't doesn't matter, why do we need to obey it? Why do we need to be holy? Why should we strive for being good at all? And Paul's answer is because you have been called to be free. And freedom is not just simply choosing whatever it is you want to do. It's choosing a life that is actually full of life. Because before this, you were slaves, slaves to sin, Slaves to your desire, slaves to your circumstances, slaves to your environment. You had no option, no choice. But when God came in, everything changed. And this is what the law did, right? The law told us what was good, but it reminded us we couldn't do it. 
The law told us what was good, but, but couldn't make us good. The law told us what was just, but it couldn't make us just. We couldn't choose life. But in Christ, the Spirit comes in and it starts to produce that life, the goodness that we never could do on our own. And this is why Paul quotes Jesus' own words. And he says that if you really want to obey the law, then love your neighbor as yourself. This really encompasses the whole purpose of what the law was supposed to do. And this is important because Paul is making it clear that obeying the law, it's not a bad thing. It's just not a salvific one. Obeying the law does not save you, but obeying the law can please God still. And so to obey the law is still good, but Jesus redefined what this actually means. It means loving your neighbor as yourself. And Paul here continues on why this is even possible in verse 16. He says, So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. You see, we all know that as Christians, we still struggle with being good. Man, we're not perfect. We still struggle with being pleasing to God. But we should also know that Paul is saying that because of the Spirit, we will still work to do so. Like, we'll still desire to do so. We'll still love to do so. And it's not for our salvation. It's because of it. You see, the the point of what Paul is saying is that there are those who are in the Spirit that are no longer judged by the law, but they are also the ones that are actually being able to live it out. So what characterizes us living according to the flesh and living according to the Spirit are are opposed completely. And Paul clarifies this in verse 19. He says, The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like— I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Paul says, men, the acts of the flesh are obvious. It is so clear that these things are not what the Spirit produces. It's what the flesh produces. The flesh makes us seek for pleasure and status and and drama. Man, the flesh, it's characterized by that selfishness and anger. And it's like weeds that grow up in the garden. And it's trying to choke out the good aspects of of the true vegetables, of the fruit, of the things that are truly beautiful and life-getting. And Paul says that anyone who is characterized by that kind of life, man, it's clear that the Spirit's not in them. It's clear that they're not a part of the kingdom of God, that they don't have the seal that shows that they are part of the covenant community. And it's like, okay, well, it sounds a little bit contradictory to say that there's some things that that are obvious that we shouldn't do, but doesn't that mean Paul's saying that those things damn us and they don't save us? No. Listen to how he finishes his thought. He says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking, and envying each other. What's Paul's point? He's saying that in faith in Christ, when we have faith in Christ, it changes everything about us. That the Holy Spirit moves in and it starts to change and produce and renovate our entire life. And really, deeds have no bearing on our eternal destination. Like, we're not condemned or saved whether we are good or bad. We are simply outputting 
who we are. And who we are apart from the Spirit will simply output sexual immorality, debauchery, anger, all of those things. But what we output when the Holy Spirit takes up residence in us is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and all of these beautiful fruit and life-giving things. You see, we aren't being saved because we're good. We are saved and then we're made good. The gospel isn't just that we are justified in Christ. It's that we are, we are people who were criminals and we have been said that we're innocent. But then there's sanctification ha- that happens and it actually makes us innocent. You see, the gospel doesn't just say we're, we're criminals, but we're saved. It says we're criminals, but now we're becoming innocent. Through the power of the cross, we're justified, we're sanctified, and we're becoming everything that God called us to be. And man, sometimes this process, it is lifelong. Matt Chandler calls it the, the dance of sanctification. Two steps forward, one step back, two steps forward, one step back. But we are in a race and we're running it, and we see the prize, we see our God, we see the presence in which he's inviting us to enjoy to its fullest extent, and we are running with perseverance, it marked out for us, trying to obtain that glory and joy and all the things that he has offered to us and he's invited us to. And what the best part about it is we don't need to be anxious or worrisome about whether we will truly be perfect in this life, be good enough, Because our life with Christ was never dependent on our goodness. It was dependent upon whether we trusted his. And what Philippians says, it gives us a promise that this process of sanctification will be completed. It says that that Paul is confident when he's writing this to the Philippians that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. And I believe this too. You see, the Christian life is not always easy, but man, it is always good. And what Paul is inviting us to is a freedom in Christ so that regardless of what life may throw at us, we have the ability to live in joy and peace and patience and kindness. And Paul understands this. And so next week, we're going to wrap up this letter looking at some practical questions that come up in terms of what the gospel is calling us to do right now. We'll see you next time. Thanks again for checking out this podcast from Christ Church of Ornogo. We hope that this teaching is helping you discover completeness in Jesus and encourages you to help others do the same. If you're interested in learning more about Christchurch, visit us online at cco.church.